Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ah, and welcome to Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill. Uh, each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions, including Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous and Al-Anon Family Groups. Our guests share their recovery experience and how their story can show that there is a way out. Today, my guests are members of Al-Anon Family Groups, and they'll be talking about living with the effects of someone else's alcoholism and how Alan has helped them cope. Uh, I'd like to welcome Marie and Janelle to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Thank you. Hello, Bill. Hi, Good to be here. <laughs> Good. Glad. Uh, well, Marie, we might start off with you. Um, sure. We usually go back to you know childhood and growing up in the family and sort of when you first came, um, I guess, into contact with with alcoholism. So what was early life like for you? Well, thank you, Bill. I need to go way back because I um, would like to just um, put my story into context in terms of my grandparents. Um, When I was a toddler, my mum went, decided to go back to work and no childcare in those days. So uh, I went to um, live with my grandparents in country Victoria between the age of 10 months and two. And my grandfather was the alcoholic uh, in those days. And, <laughs> um, you know, I'm the first oldest grandchild and um, have had or did have a very close relationship with my grandparents. Although my grandpa was an alcoholic and, and very much affected by fighting during the First World War and uh, came home from that with what we now know as PTSD um, and no wonder... Um, they gave them alcohol and cigarettes to calm their nerves and, you know, he became addicted to alcohol and cigarettes. Um, and um, so, you know, that very much influenced my grandparents' marriage and family and my father uh, growing up with that. Um, my grandpa was quite a raging alcoholic when he was drinking, but a lovely man when he was sober. So <laughs> I, had, I had that dual sort of relationship with him and um, my nana uh, and I were very close uh, when I was little, and she was very good to take me on in her mid forties. And <laughs> she had it must raced. have been a, it must have been hard for her. It so, was what was fair. her life like? Well, her life was very simple. Um, she, um, yeah, they were not well off, of course. Um, they were, you know, just they didn't own their own home for many years, and um, you know, they didn't have much money, um, but a huge love of family, and she wanted to. Um, support my um, mum and dad and so she took me on and um, I realised much later that, you know, um, I wasn't the pest that I thought I was <laughs> and, um, yeah, I probably provided a bit of comfort for her with my grandpa being the alcoholic. Right. So we had a lovely close relationship. Um, yeah, and then um, when I was two I came back to live with my parents in Melbourne and um, when my brother was born actually. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I, I confess I did have quite a bit of jealousy growing up with him as the favoured son and all that. 
in those days, you know, the male was the chief breadwinner and had the big um, careers often and um, the girls were expected to get married and have a family and look after them. So, you know, that was kind of the way it was in those days. Mm. Mm, okay. So. <clears throat> right. Well, how about you, Janelle? What was life like for you growing up? It's really interesting hearing Marie's story because I also had a very deep connection with my grandparents growing up in my very early years. Um, my family lived in another country and uh, about the age of two, my mum decided to separate from my biological father because of his drinking and cocaine habits and um, we went and for a period of time I lived with my grandparents as well. And during that time, my grandparents uh, are still very um, religious people and my mum was always a bit of the black sheep of the family. (laughs) And uh, here she Mm. was, you know, a single mum working full time and so um, I did spend a lot of time with my grandmother and and that was a really good period of my life. My stepfather came onto the scene when I was about four and he adopted me to become his own on my birth certificate, which was a really beautiful act to do. Um, I do remember, though, that when mum and dad got together, it was all about um, the party and I was very much a single child that needed to bring a book and find something to do and I used to hang out a lot with adults and just had to make my own way of things. Um, I remember being feeling that I didn't exactly belong and that I was probably feeling really lonely Uh, I was expected to just chip in and um, I was a latchkey kid, meaning that after school I'd come home and let myself in and I'd have to make my own lunches and I guess there was a period of time where um, the arguing between mum and dad started to escalate and I can remember vividly just having being on the couch and putting a pillow over my head and trying not to um, listen to the shouts. My mum would sort of combat with anger a lot about lots of different things you know if I had woken her up in the morning if I had left the tv on too loud you know and I think back now and it may have been because um, she was dealing with a hangover or you know I don't know but I just really felt like I perhaps wasn't wanted around Um, and then uh you know, just trying to go through the whole, you know, in primary school and not feeling really like I could talk to anyone about this because it felt like my family was completely different. Although on the outside we had the great house, um, my parents were working all the time, so we had money for holidays and clothes and it's what I now know to be high-functioning. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was an interesting time of our life. And then at 11 they decided to do a big geographical and move to Australia. Wow. So after that happened, we arrived in Australia and it was a a real turning point in our lives. My dad felt like he really belonged because of the drinking culture at work um, and on weekends here in Australia with the male sort of bonding over long work lunches. He really enjoyed that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I really found that I could talk to other kids at school because their parents were also drinking. And I don't don't know, I just really um, found felt like I had come to a really good place and I made lots of great connections through school. Um, My mum, on the other hand, really struggled. She found it hard to transition. It was very different to where we'd been living before um, until she decided to start her own business and her workaholism (laughs) allowed her to find uh, a tribe of people that she, you know, knew more about. Okay, thank you. Um, So back to you, Marie. 
so you'd been living with your grandparents and then mm. I understand your grandparents came to live with you. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. When, uh, when I was at primary school, that happened because my parents were often um, putting up uh, relatives at the house while they built their, you know, their own homes. Um, so we had uh, our grand, my grandparents living with us for a while and my grandfather was still working at that stage and um, on payday would often mm. come home drunk, um, you know, and was a great embarrassment to my father in particular with some of the antics. Um, <clears throat> it was very confusing to me because he would have the cherry ripe <laughs> in the one hand for me and... <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and um, he, um, you know, we weren't allowed to talk about what we could see, you know, the thing I've heard in meetings about don't think, don't feel, don't don't, don't talk about this stuff, um, the elephant in the room. So, um, yeah, I tried once and I got into great trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Can't talk about that, Marie. So, um, I, you know, I learnt to... Um, Stuff it down, basically, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, and and so anyhow, they eventually moved out, and we got on with our lives. But then, when I went to high school um, in Year Nine, my father was moved with work to Country Victoria, so we went and rented our home in Melbourne, and um, and then he got relocated back again three years later to Melbourne. So. I, I had great difficulty making friends as a teenager. Um, yeah, I was a lonely kid too. And um, and particularly coming back to Melbourne, you know, halfway through the year 12, I struggled and I just, I, I was, didn't have many friends, but the main, the main goal was to get through the year and, you know, study, you know. My parents uh, were not highly educated, self-educated. They had a business, um, but... Um, they valued education, so you know they really pushed us. I'm the oldest of six, right? Okay. Uh, yeah, so they pushed us, you know, to uh, get a good education. And in fairness, they made lots of sacrifices for us yeah. to have a good yeah, education. Yeah, we often overlook that, don't we? Yes, yeah, yeah they did. They did uh, make a lot of sacrifices for mm. us. Yeah. So, but, what were relationships like for you? Um, <clears throat> I was the good, obedient girl. Um, being the oldest, um, I was expected a bit like Janelle to help out um, in the house, um, and especially when my mother was working too in their business, family business. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I just kind of felt as though I was on automatic pilot all the time, you know, with helping out around the house, helping look after the younger kids, and all of that. But I didn't get much individual attention. You know, that's what I craved. If I ever did get the one-to-one, you know, it was really unusual and special. Yeah. Right, yeah. I was lonely. You know, I was wanting that special um, affection and attention. And mum and dad were always busy, um, especially my mother, you know, juggling. And also the other thing is uh, down the track, my youngest brother has a disability. So that, you know, took up a lot of extra time and attention for her. Yeah. As oh, well sure. as juggling their business. Yeah. 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 So, so, she did was, you, so did you seek out... Outside the family? Um, no, not really. It played a little bit of sport, tennis and yeah. so on, when we lived in the country. Um, but no, mostly study. You know, that was the way that – and helping around the house and, yeah. and our church, I suppose, a bit of church involvement. Because um, right. we were raised in a strict religion too. That was the other thing. So you didn't yeah. talk about reli- uh, alcoholism. You know, that was all shame and denial. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I didn't have many friends, to be honest, and, and it was influenced 
partly by my lack of confidence and also the fact that I changed schools. Yeah. You see. Okay. So, but I had my head down when I got back to Melbourne to get through year 12. That was the main aim. Right. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so back to you, Janelle. Um, so you've come back to, you've come to Australia. Mm-hmm. Your mum's working really, really hard, mm-hmm. leaving you alone. <laughs> so... So where are you? What stage of life are you at here? So during high school years, um, I had some really great friends and some good connections. However, there was the sort of, uh, you know, I learnt early on to be able, like what Marie was saying, is that um, being able to hide things like lying, you know, keeping the secret because shame loves secrecy. And so um, there were certain things I could talk to my friends about, but not everyone. And... um, the drinking and the working really started to escalate within my family and every couple of years or every year there would be some sort of bust up or something would happen between mum and dad and it was, you know, dad was having trouble at work or there was like a car accident or someone's lost their licence or there was just all of this kind of stuff that was perpetuating um, and there was really no resolution and my parents would really come to me almost like a third person within the relationship to, to try and help fix the situation and I felt a lot of responsibility. Um, Then at 16 years old, my sister was born. So my mum fell pregnant and she was a surprise and a blessing all in one. And uh, that really, I remember having a conversation, we were sitting around the dinner table and my mum was like, okay, well, we're all battening down the hatches and we're all going to deal with this together. (laughs) And, you know, like I got to help name my sister and it was just expected that I would pick her up from, you know, the babysitter's house, relieve the babysitter, help with cooking. And I became the third parent and I felt really, really responsible for her for my entire life um, going through that. At the same time, I was going through year 12 and the perfectionism in me really started to escalate. I had this fear of being criticised. I had this fear of disappointing people and I really um, was working hard to get the best grades and do what I could and I had a lot of stress um, in my life as well as trying to juggle also the fact that this baby wouldn't sleep Um, (laughs) and it all became my problem. Problem, right? Um, so once my sister was born, you know, the fracture sort of within my parents' relationships, there was moments that was good, um, but there was also a lot of time where we were all quite under pressure and it got to um, – it all came to a head when I was about 21 and I'd still been living at home with mum and dad and we had had a rip-roaring argument about – with my dad about a CD. It was the silliest little thing, you know, and it yeah. was just enraged and um, – <laughs> I went to bed that night and I woke up and I had a pain in my stomach and I was like, oh, I really need, I need, like, there's something not right here. Turns out I had appendicitis and I'd asked mum and dad to take me to the hospital and they couldn't or they didn't. And from that moment on, I took myself to the hospital and I realised that this is a turning point in my life. I am going to always have to look after myself. Um, even though I've done all of these things for my family unit, it's it's going to be all about me and, and it was time. So I moved out of home about six months later after I'd done some healing and I went on through my 20s to to live my life the way I wanted to live it and my sister was five at the time and I, and I left her at home. Yeah. it's Looking back, do you sort of feel terrible about doing that to your sister? I felt so much guilt for so long because, yeah, yeah it, it was – you know, I felt responsible for her and here I was um, leaving the family nest to go and live my life and do the things break that free. I wanted yeah. to do, break yeah. free because yeah. I just couldn't yeah. I couldn't be involved in this disease anymore. Yeah. So could you have normal relationships with people or were they 
influenced by your upbringing? Uh, they were definitely influenced. So I had a couple of long-term relationships with boyfriends. The first one I had, you know, for five years, he was um, suffered from depression and I wanted to fix and save him and I gave everything to try and <laughs> lift him up in his life and mm-hmm. fix him and, and at the end of the day I just couldn't. And then uh, my next relationship, another long-term for five years, he was uh, addicted to marijuana and I spent took on the role of my mum where I was this fire-breathing dragon almost where I just was trying to change him and to fix him and mould him into something that he wasn't and I just could not see the fact that he just couldn't put this thing down um, and it really had a detrimental effect on on my life because I came, I became someone that I didn't want to be. Yeah, that's it's strange, mm. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so back to you, Marie. So did, how did you get out of the home? Oh, well, this good little convent girl um, <laughs> became pregnant. <laughs> uh, yeah, shame and denial. Um, I couldn't hide it for long, could I? Um, no, look, when I met my husband, we were only 18, 19, and, um, you know, child calling to child. He was he was an adult child too. His yep. father was a drinker. His mother very dominant and controlling. Mm, strange um, pattern, that. Strange pattern, that. Strange. <laughs> and he was also the oldest of six kids, just like me, yep. oldest and oldest. Um, and um, But, you know, my parents really liked him and, mm. and um, he was giving me attention that I craved. Yep. And he said to me, you know, and you... You really understood me, Marie. You know, I yeah. really liked that you listened and you understood me. Yeah. And um, you know, he ticked all the boxes like right religion. He was a clever, um, sporting. You know, and I was physically attracted to. So yeah. Uh, uh, so but, but we, your dad was a teetotaler, wasn't he? My dad was a teetotaler, so he didn't want to know about my husband's drinking. Right. And and he didn't drink all the time, like he was studying and. Um, just a sporting things, you know, and I thought that was rather glamorous, actually. Yeah. Because you know there was no the the alcohol in our home was all taboo, and I thought it was you know awful. So um, because that's the influence that was on me from my parents, yeah. and and um, I I sort of took that on, but um, yeah, so that was attractive to me and a bit you know dangerous and rebellious and. Anyhow, I became pregnant. We got married um, very young. Um, I was barely twenty one, and. Um, so we went on to have four little boys under the age of five and um, it was very busy for me but I couldn't work and uh, there wasn't a lot of childcare in those days anyway so um, I, I relied very much on my husband, you know, for um, – well, he was studying actually the yeah. first four years of our marriage. Right. Um, yeah. So we were living on the smell of an oily rag and <laughs> eventually got a good job and, um, and then um, – after a few years, we had to relocate, um, uh, and uh, well, we didn't have to. But he, his career, he was offered a position overseas, and so um, we went. I was very much the trailing spouse, and I put my career on hold for him, because he earned the big money. Um, and then, um, and that happened a couple of times over the years, over the decades. He was mm. invited back a second time, you know, and then uh, the second time was really tough because um, we'd had two more children and um, the older ones were at a very different stage from the first move. They were, teen- Especially the oldest boy, he was at a terrible stage to pull him out of school, 14 going on 15. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, he struggled with that first 12 months of our move. Um, so anyhow, um, he he struggled so much. I was worried that he was going to have a nervous breakdown 
and he wanted to come back to boarding school, so we allowed him to do that, which was really tough for me, the grief yeah. of losing and the family breakup of losing the oldest son. I felt like a real, it was a real loss, looking at his empty bed and so on. And um, that was tough, and he got sick when he was over here and I wasn't around, and, you know, it was a very big challenge to stay where we were living. <laughs> <laughs> and still support my husband yep. and not want to – I did want to, but I didn't do it, pack up and come back to Australia. Uh, anyway, something held me there, perhaps the <laughs> overdeveloped sense of loyalty or something. But, uh, yeah, so eventually, though, I did put a boundary and I said, look, we need to come back for the sake of all the kids and the family and, and me and everybody. Um, you know, <laughs> I've done my bit, basically. I need to come home. So we did. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah eventually, yeah. But I got, got very homesick. I'm you know. sure, yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so we might take a quick break. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. We've got over 85 episodes of the Living Free Sh- Show available as podcasts on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree. So if you want to check them out, they're there. Um, if you'd like to send us a message, you can contact us via 3CR on 03 9419 8377 uh, by email at 3 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter as 3CR Living Free. Um, we've got the Radiothon coming up on uh, for our show. It's on the 13th of June, and this year we need to reach $1,000. So if you dig deep, you can keep, uh, keep us self-supporting and on air for another 12 months. In 2019, 3CR has the power. power. Add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. To donate, call 039419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019, Power Radical Radio. I'm talking with Janelle and Marie, and we're talking about living with a family disease of alcoholism and how Alan and family groups can help. Uh, so, Janelle, we'll start off with you this time. So, what about relationships with you? You've had a couple of difficult relationships. Did one <laughs> stick? Yes, thankfully. Um, I somehow broke the pattern of being able to find men that I needed to fix. (laughs) And uh, I had focused a lot once I moved out of home on my career and had found myself working in an organisation and met my husband there. And uh, he is a great man and he was very different to relationships I'd been in the past. And we spent a couple of years living and working overseas and we came back and and had uh, a little boy. And during that process, I can really see now how while I was away, a lot of the issues within my family had been escalating and I had come back and... Um, my parents had still gone on to, with my sister living there, um, you know, had started growing further and further apart in the things that they were doing. And, um, my, when I was pregnant, my, with my son, uh, one Christmas, as all Christmases can break up, you know, (laughs) with 
<laughs> difficult time for families. Very difficult. We decided to go out at Christmas Eve for dinner and uh, it was a debacle from start to finish and we decided never going out ever again for dinner. It always has to be in the house. Um, you know, there was arguments going on and I remember that was the first time that I really threw out the ultimatum and said there is a problem with alcoholism in both of you and uh, you will not be allowed to see your grandchild until you deal with this. And That pretty harsh words. Very yeah. harsh words, uh, you know. <laughs> So it was it was my attempt at getting them to wake up and see what was going on. However, since I've learnt that ultimatums actually don't work and the person has to be ready to deal with what's in their life when, when they're ready. Um, so there was, you know, when my son was born, obviously I didn't stick with that ultimatum. I wanted, you know, the most important thing for me was that he had a connection to his grandparents. I was hoping for something similar to the connection that I had with my grandparents growing up. Um, and, uh, you know, they were they were a support to me and, you know, there has been amazing memories that I have had with them. Um, however, alcohol, their, their drinking has always been a problem for me in, in our relationship. Mm. Um, it all came to a head really uh, when my sister was in her early 20s. She had grown up with them and she was had moved out of home to uh, follow a passion that she had and started an apprenticeship. And so my husband and I purchased an investment property and wanted to help her, give her a helping hand for somewhere to live Um, and that was all good and well for a little while until all of these patterns started to emerge within her life where I could see she was having a bit of chaos happen like she lost her license she'd have a car accident she was having trouble at work starting to blame other people all these patterns that I had grown up seeing but I didn't really want to believe it I was in a lot of denial that there was something going on with her Um, I felt like I should have known and it was my responsibility as her older sister to know these things Um, then one day the police showed up on the doorstep and and she had to come clean with the fact that she was addicted to methamphetamine and that was um, a major downward spiral for my entire family. Yeah. Yeah. So with her addiction, uh, she actually went into rehab and we tried to do everything, meaning me as the third parent, jumped in there and tried to fix, manage and control the situation with my parents. However, the issue between my mum and dad was that they had very different ideas about how to fix this situation. One of them wanted to leave with unconditional love and the other wanted to lead with tough love. So there was no unity and then there was me somewhere in between trying to hold everyone up. And then, of course, they had their own issues. So she went into rehab and came out and we were supporting her and I was taking her to meetings and I was doing all these things that I thought would be great. I found myself in Naranon, which is a family support group for um, people who are addicted to narcotics. There the is one... Families, yeah. Families, yeah. yeah it's for yeah. the families yeah. of, um, of addicted loved ones. And and I found myself there looking for answers on how to help fix her life. Uh, what I found, that was, that was my experience in a first in a 12-step program and I stayed in that for for about six months until I felt that she had, you know, that she had gotten a bit of sobriety under her belt. Um, and then I thought, wow, we're all fixed. We're all good. I can go back to my life and this is all fine. Yep. However, <laughs> as what happens when you're dealing with addictions and alcoholism is that there's relapses and she relapsed and relapsed and relapsed and ended up moving home uh, for good with mum and dad and that is when all of the chaos really started. That must have been absolutely chaotic. It's <laughs> just... It was, um, <sighs> you know, you've got two people who are trying to appear to be sober 
um, and and hiding, you know, their their bottles and things like that uh, to try and support her. However, she's also trying to hide the fact that she's been relapsing as well. There's money being taken, you know. There's all these things. I mean, and in one day, I'd have all three of them ringing me telling me all of the problems with each other and I was it was like a nest it was like a nest of vipers kind of thing that's all I can imagine it as being um so during that period of my time I mean I can look back and laugh about it now it was really really not funny and it was a horrible experience for us to have to go through um and what happened is is that from trying to hold everyone up, it was about about a year after I'd been to Naranon, um, I had just had enough and I literally cut them all out of my life for one month and it was a glorious month of silence and I just said, I cannot take this anymore. Yep. I am losing my grip on being able to be the mother and the wife that I want to be. Um, and then my grandmother passed away. And it was a horrible experience because I felt like the connection that I had to the one true beautiful thing in my life was gone, even though I hadn't seen her for a few years and obviously we lived in different countries. I still felt that deep connection and I found myself in um, what they call complicated grief and it was just everything in my life was too much. I couldn't, I just couldn't get out of bed. I was crying. I couldn't get up to feed my son. He was standing at my bed going, mum, yum, you know. I was just not functioning in life and I realised that I needed to do something about it. Um, I went and saw a psychologist, you know, which gave me some good strategies. However, I felt like I was telling the psychologist more about alcoholism and things that had happened in my life than than what she perhaps, you know, had had experience with. So I didn't feel like there was a mutual understanding. And one day my husband just said to me, um, you know, where is my wife gone? Like, what what's happened to you? And I realized that I needed to do something about this. And so I got out Dr. Google, (laughs) as we do. And I typed in, how do I, how do I live with alcoholism in my family? And Al-Anon family groups popped up. Ah, wow. Wow, yeah. And it was uh, it was definitely a divine intervention because I was led to a meeting the very next day. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, we might stop there. We'll cut back to you, uh, mm-hmm. Marie. Yes. Um, so you've come back to Australia to be yes. with your son and your family's come back too. Yes. So how did your husband take that? Oh, not well at all. He He was very angry about me interfering with his grand career. <laughs> but um yeah anyhow um it was just a turning point in our relationship really um i just felt that i had to ma- had to put my foot down and make a move i'd just come to the end of my tether yeah and although he was angry um you know and he went back to um his um career in melbourne with the same company um we sort of settled back into um our home that we'd been renting in country victoria and uh, life went on pretty well, um, uh, as normal really. Um, he, you know, he's became very involved in work. Like he has the the other ism is the workaholism. Yeah, yeah. It's very common, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, very common. But you know, in in fairness, he was providing for six kids. You know, and they were teenagers, and they were having, you know, private education. So it was very expensive, and mm. and he was very um, a very good good worker. You know, very good dedicated. provider. Yeah. Good provider. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, that w- that was what he saw is his role in life. Um, and um, and I was doing the other thing of you know looking after the kids, but I also had 
put my own career on hold and, and I did a little bit of went back to that part-time and, and that, that made me feel good too, um, you know. But, um, yeah, so um, what happened next? Um, well, uh, we moved back to Melbourne because um, my uh, father-in-law suddenly died. He was uh, a drinker and a heavy smoker. And he died very suddenly at 60 and my parents retired from their business and things. Our teenage kids were going back and forth up the highway with their old cars breaking down. And so we decided to come back to Melbourne and we did. And um, uh, But my husband's drinking was starting to pick up a bit more and um, not during the day, of course. You never drink at work, but at night. Um, And that was starting to bother me and... um, a friend of mine said, um, look, I know this program. How about coming along and seeing what it's like? And she took me to a couple of nighttime meetings. And uh, I had two things happen. Um, firstly, when we got there, I was overwhelmed. It was totally foreign to me and, and challenging. And I I don't know. I think, you know, they say you get to Al-Anon when you're ready. And it was perhaps a bit too overwhelming from my point of view and totally foreign. Uh, and then um, when I got home on both occasions, um, my husband um, was verbally abusive about me betraying the marriage and he thought I'd be talking about all of our marital secrets or whatever. Um, and um, so I decided to put it aside, Alanon, for a couple of years. But, you know, things were going from bad to worse. And um, a couple of, and also my job changed and I had um, a, a day off free, Mondays free during the day. I rang AA and to the the wonderful man there said, sounds like you need Al-Anon, Al-Anon family groups. So uh, he um, gave me the number and um, I rang them straight away and um, they, you know, we had a chat about what was happening and then they suggested um, a couple of meetings that might suit me in the area. And so I chose my wonderful home group that I still go to today, Mooney Ponds Monday. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, but you see, I wasn't ready a couple of years earlier. I really wasn't ready. Uh, things, uh, you know, they talk about getting to your rock bottom and um, I was desperate for help. I had to be bad enough to feel like I needed to, to break those patterns of denial and walk through the doors. It was a big risk for me because, you know, I was taught you didn't talk about that stuff. No. The de-alcoholism, no. you know, yeah. especially when I was a kid, I was thoroughly trained not to addressing any of that any of that stuff so it was quite confronting to take that risk walk through the door and hear the amazing honesty in the rooms and I started to really listen and identify and the atmosphere of peace and serenity I'll never forget it mm. and the big on the back wall of Mooney Ponds Monday the venue had this big poster with these four letters sparkling h-o-p-e hope right. <laughs> and 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 they were so warm and welcoming and the lovely long – I'm very, very grateful to the long-time members. And they were so inclusive and lovely and the one that said at the end after the meeting, just keep coming back. And so I have. Yeah, that's good. I have. And I have very regularly and I go to two meetings a week now in Mooney Ponds. And, um, yeah, I've never looked back. And um, I'm so grateful to that lady that said keep coming back because I found, you know, a whole new world. Okay. Right, listen, we might take another break. Are you wondering how you can pledge your support for a 3CR radio program during Radiothon? It's easy. Call us on 9419 
8377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au or you can even come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, chewing office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post us your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277, that's P.O. Box 1277, in Collingwood 3066. And thank you for being part of 3CR's annual Radiothon. You're listening to um, Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, I'm talking with Marie and Janelle, and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism in Al-Anon family groups. Um, Janelle, back to you. I think where where we leave you, where um, I think your sister was having a bit of a breakdown mm-hmm. and you were having a yep. bit of a breakdown. Yep, it was so, all happening. Right. It was all happening. Um, and I found myself at the doors of Al-Anon and uh, I went to my first meeting knowing that I couldn't fix the alcoholism in my family or the disease within my family. Um, however, knowing that I needed to learn how to cope, learn how to some skills to be able to cope with it because... Uh, I knew that this was bigger than me and I went to my first meeting and I had a baseball cap on and I was really trying to sit low in my seat and I was really nervous about the people I was going to meet and would they know me or you know anything like that and what I realised very soon is that it's all anonymous and extremely confidential and you don't have to say who you are or what your label is other than your first name and mm. I looked up and there was banners all over the wall and I could see the 12 steps for the first time and the first step says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable and I just thought, wow, that's me, that's my life, that's exactly what's happening in my life and I knew that I was in the right place and I pretty much cried my way through the first, I don't know, two months of meetings (laughs) and, um, you know, being able to share my experience and where I was at Uh, but I found a wonderful network and support of men and women who had been through exactly what I had been through. The stories were similar in some but different in others and I was able to learn a lot about about the alcoholism in my family and, and how to cope with it. And one of the first things that I remember learning was the three C's, which is all about the fact that I didn't cause it and um, I can't cure it and I can't control it. Mm. And for me it was like this light bulb moment where I went, oh, my gosh, I have been feeling like this is my fault that my sister has this addiction, that that I can't fix my parents. And I I came to the realisation, you know what, it's not about me. They're all adults in their own right and I can only focus on the things I can control, which is me, myself, my reactions, my my emotions. And so I did a lot of work and and Al-Anon was really the first step that I took um, to be able to get myself in a better place, to be able to heal the relationships in my life. Yeah. So which relationships did you focus on initially? Yeah. So the first one was really with my husband and my son um, and myself. I really needed to heal myself um, and learn how to put in some healthy boundaries with my family to be able to tell them, you know, that I, this, I, 
I want you to respect my wishes and I don't I don't want to be having calls and messages at 11 o'clock at night because that interrupts my sleep um, and I know when I can't um, don't sleep well then I'm not a good mum the next day mm-hmm. so there was lots of things like that that I learned um, and then eventually through working on myself and changing my behaviors and the things that I needed to work on within me and having more of an understanding, I've been able to accept my parents for who they are. And thankfully, I can say that um, me changing was a, a ripple effect in my family. It was nothing that I really did myself to be able to say, you should do this and you should go there. But my sister found sobriety and it was wow. it had nothing yeah. to do with me. Um, my parents decided that they would like to separate and that, again, had nothing to do with me. I was allowing them to have the respect of being able to be adults and work things out for themselves for the first time. I wasn't getting involved and so I became healthier and then our relationships became healthier too. Yeah. So I think it's the detachment that does it. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a bit about detachment? Yeah, sure. So originally I had detached, you know, when I cut them out for a month and yep. I was like, I can't talk to you anymore. And it was in a rage and fire. And now I learned through Al-Anon, it's about detaching with love and being able to say, I accept you and I understand that, but I'm I'm not going to be affected by your behavior um, and that I love you anyway. Even though you choose to drink, I have found a way that your drinking is not a problem for me anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's In a lot of families, the drinker's problem mm-hmm. is a problem to the family. It's yes. not a problem to the drinker yes, no. because the family – that's compensate right. yeah 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 it's tragic exactly exactly <laughs> uh, um okay so back to you then marie um i think you've 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 made it into Alanon and yes. realized that you've just got to change yes so what were those changes oh well yeah well i uh, <laughs> when i first came into Alanon, uh i knew i needed to be there once i've got there finally um but i didn't like the fact <laughs> the realisation that it was me that had to change. That was the first <laughs> shock. And after all, I wasn't the drinker. Yeah. See? Yeah. Not yet. So, yeah, no. <laughs> and, you know, I was full of um, self-righteousness and justification and resentment and anger and all the rest of it. Um, but slowly, slowly, I realised that um, the members in the group didn't want to hear about the drama with my husband. They just wanted to hear about me. What, what were you doing about it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah Don't yeah. tell us about him. What, no, what did you do? Yeah. No, that's right. <laughs> and it was, it, look, they say things take time, you know, the three Ts, things take time, and they do because it had taken a long time for me to get where I was in terms of my behaviour patterns within the marriage and uh, control and, you know, manipulation and managing and, you know, I was the supreme manager and... <laughs> I feel a bit uncomfortable saying manipulator, but it's true. And the martyr and the mother. I was treating him like the seventh child, really, and that's exactly what his mother did. Mm. You know, she was very domineering and controlling because, you know, my father-in-law was a drinker. And, uh, yeah, so um, I was doing what his mother was doing and he didn't like it, of course, um, and I had to remind myself that he wasn't a child. He's an adult and, you know, very much into it, being yeah. an adult. And, um, you know, father of our six children and everything. So um, slowly, slowly I started to listen more deeply to what the members were saying. And uh, and also the other thing that helped me a lot was the literature 
reading the literature on a daily basis. That mm. was suggested, mm. as well as the other tools. So I fairly quickly got a sponsor who I could talk to about the more intimate details that I couldn't really appropriately share in the group. But, um, yeah, and, and hooking on to the slogans, they were easy to apply. Mm. You know, live and let live, uh, let go and let God. Um, all of those things were wonderful. Let it begin with me. You know, my husband was pretty miserable too, as I was. And slowly, in more recent years, I'm starting to reach out. And just in small ways, you know, let it begin with me. So when he goes to work very early, which he still does, um, he brings me a cup of tea and I give him a hug. Mm. That showing affection and that affirmation means that, you know, it's only a small thing, but and I wish him, I hope he has a good day and this sort of stuff. Just little things. Um, Once he accused me of having, not too kindly, verbal diarrhoea because, (laughs) look, um, he doesn't really, his personality, he doesn't really want to hear all the minute of what's going on in my head. And I don't have to say immediately what I'm thinking. I'm learning to be more silent and more measured in what I say and, and to listen more. And sometimes that's the really best thing to do. I don't have to react by competing or making a comment. That's allowing the alcoholism to take control because it's reeling us into an argument. Yeah, you know, as soon as you justify your position, you're just opening yourself up. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have to compete. I can just be quiet or I can detach, as Janelle was saying, move to another room or go read a book. There's so many things. Go for a walk, do other things. There's all those choices that we don't yes, think we have. Exactly. I we, didn't, once we start exercising them, there's plenty to life. Yeah. Yeah. And it brings about a whole lot more harmony in yeah. our relationship. Yeah. If I can let things go, yeah. you know, how important is it? Well, really, you know, some things are important, but mostly they're not. I can let them go in the big – if I can keep the big picture in mind, yeah. 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 And I've learnt, you know, a lot of wisdom from the long-time members and I'm gradually, finally, finally at my age starting to grow up and mature. But, <laughs> and, and also to understand myself. I didn't know myself when I first no, came into al no. I had no idea. Simple things like my favourite colour, my favourite piece of music, all that stuff – I didn't think I had a right, you know, because I was mm. so focused on everybody else. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was my role. Yeah. But I'm okay. learning a whole lot about myself and it's just fun. It's yeah. really it's, – it's really, it is hard work, there's no doubt, but it's also fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, Janelle, has, has your relationship improved with your mum? Yeah, absolutely. I actually spent last week with her. Um, She's moved into state now and I went up for a holiday with my son and we spent five days together and it was such an incredible experience. It was probably the best week that I've ever had with her in my life and I've come to a point where Mm -hmm. we have both accepted each other and um, we now find common ground. She's much happier. She is living the life that I guess, you know, she always wanted to live and, and couldn't or didn't allow herself to and so she's much happier and now her drinking um, is minimal and and it's no longer a problem for me and that's a huge shift in our life yeah yeah and the same with my sister as well I mean she was spending um, she had a blip in the radar last year mm. and she came to live with me for a couple of weeks and it ended up being six months and mm. you know I don't think that ever <laughs> would have uh, gone down too good if I hadn't have had Alan on as yeah. a support yeah. mm. so we we now have a great relationship yeah <laughs> 
Well, that is good. Yeah, it's that's the thing that it improves your relationships with everybody mm-hmm. because being honest with people, you mm-hmm. don't. There's no deception anymore, exactly. and you don't have to remember who you told what to. Exactly. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, so Marie, do you want to say anything else? If if there's somebody out there who's thinking of going to Alan, what would you suggest? Oh, look, I'd say jump in, give it a go. And we say it, you know, the first meeting for newcomers, you know, try six meetings and see if Alan on is for you. Um, I've just had such a wonderful experience. It's been life-changing, really. Um, you know, there's no rules in Al-Anon either. That was what I was hung up on, the rules. There's no yeah. contracts to sign. You know, <laughs> there's no big money involved. It's such a freeing experience. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, go for it because what have you got to lose? Yes, mm. that's right. Okay, well, listen, uh, if anybody would like to find out more about al family groups, then you can. You can phone them on one three hundred two five two six six six, or you can go online at alanon.org.au. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Marie and Janelle for coming in and sharing their Alan Family Group's recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thank, thank you, Bill. Bill. It's thank been you. great. It was wonderful. Uh, um, I hope you'll be able to join us next week when we'll be having our Radiothon show and we'll be joined by some of our previous guests. Uh, we need to raise $1,000, so if you dig deep, you can help us reach a target that'll keep us on air for another year. So, again, thank you very much. Thank you.